have any questions? I would try the reflection, just have faith first, because that's the simplest. <laughs> you know, and, and if that kind of reminder uh, helps the mind settle back and, and become disidentified from the tape, whether the fear tape or the self-judgment tape, it's great, you don't have to do anything more. So I think that's a, that could be a skillful uh, first step. It's, it's fine, it's not, definitely not cheating. <laughs> I actually don't know in this practice if it's possible to cheat because <laughs> if it doesn't actually free the mind, you know, in that moment, it'll be back. And so there's this kind of a built-in uh, safeguard. And what's so amazing is you've now for you know many weeks <clears throat> is just how seductive different mind appearances can be but they are all essentially empty you now they don't have any strength or reality other than the power that we give them so that's the bottom line it's just that through you know, endless conditioning we get lost in one way or another in these appearances of mind, the various tapes, the various habits, you know, conditioned tendencies. And really the task is not particularly or necessarily to figure it all out, but rather to just find the skillful means to stop buying in, to not, to not be identified with. And then we, as you said, it was, it was quite beautiful, you just settle back, just have faith and Everything keeps rolling along. Of course, it's sometimes easier to say that than to do it. <laughs> um, <clears throat> last night I was left with this feeling that uh, everything uh, in the body or mind, everything, uh, is attached to a craving on some level. Um, Cellular level, I mean, you can feel it. But, I mean, 
the cells want the oxygen. I mean, they're just kind of built in with this. We're built as we mean feel that just, and how do you not buy into that? I mean, that seems like the awareness would have to be so profound to cover it, or by kind of getting too spun out on it. I think you're probably getting too spun out a little bit. The, the question was about, just last night he, he had this sitting where he, he was in the feeling that the craving or the desire is just built in to the... And there's nothing, even when I'm left, I'm left with the sense, the sense of craving with nothing to crave. I mean, I, I said, well, what's going on? Is there anything, am I wanting anything that I can consciously see at this moment? Mm -hmm. The answer was no, but yet I had this intuitive sense somewhere where I was feeling that, in fact, I did. There was nothing to kind of grab onto. Mm -hmm. So it, it's just about the perception that craving is so deeply conditioned on all the levels of our mind and body and cells, uh, and that even when he had the experience of not wanting anything in particular, the feeling of the wanting or craving still being there. It clearly is deeply conditioned. You know, it's the driving force of samsara. It's, that's what keeps us, you know, endlessly in this round of rebirths, whether you see it moment to moment, or sitting to sitting, or life to life, it's the same process. Um, what could be interesting for you to do in terms of cutting the identification with it on <clears throat> increasingly profound levels is to drop into the place of the craving itself being known. Right? That, the that the awareness... No, but, but you... That's still giving too much emphasis to the craving itself rather than to the awareness. Because the awareness is like space. The awareness is lucid, it's clear, it's unobstructed. It's like, it's space-like. And all of the defilements or the kalesas are appearances, no matter how deeply conditioned. And so it's to, our practice is to drop back, that's a spatial metaphor, but to drop back into the awareness of whatever's arising, even on these very subtle levels. And to know that, at least according to the theory, the craving is really not uprooted from the mind until one is fully enlightened. So don't be surprised as you... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's three weeks left. So <laughs> but it, just a reminder that it is actually more freeing to see the different and increasingly subtle levels of craving than not to see it. So just as it reveals itself, there actually can be a, a kind of delight in the mind that it's being seen. 
right? Rather than the sense of, oh, there's so much craving and down the path of discouragement. It's really because of the growing awareness that you're seeing it on the more and more subtle levels. And that's precisely the vehicle for freeing the mind from it. It needs to be seen, otherwise we are unconsciously acting it out. The question was, in the sequence of contact, feeling, craving, where do intentions fit in? In that sequence, it would, it would, um, well, let me back up. Intentions are a common factor. We, and again, this is Abhidhamma. This is the theory in the Abhidhamma. The intentions are a common factor, which means that they're actually arising in every moment. In this sequence, contact, feeling, craving, even though it's laid out sequentially, actually contact, feeling are arising together. Right? These mental factors don't occur just one by one by one, they come in clusters, so intention is always there in every moment. Sometimes it's predominant, and sometimes it's not. It's most predominant, or most easily accessible to us, intention preceding some movement or some activity. That's where it's easiest to see. But on more subtle levels you can see at times when the mind is quite quiet, you can actually notice the intention to think. But the mind has to be really quiet and still, you know, maybe sometimes you've had the experience of you know that a thought is about to happen before it happens. So it's just to, to realize that that factor it's really the it's said that intention functions as, and this is a very kind of Indian Indian model, uh, as the general secretary of the organization. Uh, it's the intention, this jaitna, which organizes all the mental factors, uh, directing it to whatever the object is. And then it depends what it's associated. Is it associated with craving? Is it associated with wisdom? Is it associated with compassion? So it's always permanent. Yeah. It's a very interesting rite of passage in at least some Buddhist cultures and it, it's quite striking to me because uh, it symbolizes uh, the essence of 
the practice in liberation, and that is very typically uh, young people will ordain, even for a short time, for a day, for a week, you know, for a couple of weeks. And it's quite, it's both cute, but it's also uh, inspiring in, in the monasteries to see these young boys and girls, you know, it's seven years old, eight years old, ten years old, with shaved heads and robes. And there's often a very big deal made of it, you know, and they'll go to the ordination, and this is the tradition of the culture, uh, decked out, you know, in princess and princely garments, <laughs> you know, and then uh, renounce all that, you know, and put on the robes and shave the head as a symbol of renunciation. Uh, whether or not, you know, I'm sure for each individual young person it's, it's taken in on different levels, but it really is the sim symbolizing, you know, of the renunciation uh, of desire, of craving. So that's, a, that's for example, a very typical, uh, you could call it the uh, Eastern Bar Mitzvah. <laughs> and it's, it really is quite uh, inspiring in, in the Buddhist texts and um, you know, even, even up until the present day, there are, there are stories, many stories, of young people from age seven up uh, becoming fully enlightened. Any other questions? Definitely, and I mean, I don't want to get into this. The, the question was about whether in the West there is much teaching of the Dharma for children. Um, you know, actual chances to practice. Uh, there are some retreats here at IMS during the year, you know, specifically designed for kids. But we'll, this would be a good topic, you know, at the end of the retreat during integration time, because it is an important, a really important issue. But for now, I, I wouldn't reflect too much on it. <laughs> Enjoy your day. This is a question about practice that somebody left. I understand the concept of remaining at the sense door in my experience of the senses of smelling, tasting, and touching. How to do this with seeing and hearing is a mystery. Depth of field and direction draw their attention out and away. The question is about how to stay at the sense door with seeing and hearing. I think it's helpful to keep in mind that in every moment of experience through the senses,
three things are happening. There's the sense object, the sense door, for example, a sound is the object, the door is the ear, and then the consciousness or awareness which arises out of that contact. At different times in the practice, one or another of these three things will be predominant in each moment. So for example, we can be noticing the arising experience and sometimes what's predominant is the actual sense object, the sound, the sight, the smell, the touch. Sometimes what's predominant is the feeling or sensation at the sense door. So for example, with a sound, sometimes either spontaneously or through intention, you could actually pay attention to the sensations right at the ear as you're hearing the sound. So you become aware of the experience or sensations of that particular sense door, or the eye, for example. Actually feel the sensations of that sense base. Sometimes we're aware primarily of the object, sometimes primarily of the sense door or sense base. Sometimes we're tuned primarily to the awareness or the consciousness that arises, the knowing. It's not that these three are necessarily, uh, that you separate them, because all three are happening in the moment's experience, but one or another may be predominant. So I hope that wasn't too confusing. Well, you could say that it's the touch sensation conditioned by the hearing of the sound, or it's the vibration. I'm not quite sure of the. Uh, I'm not even quite sure what science it is, <laughs> the physics of it, or whatever it is. You know, the the vibration of the air hitting whatever it hits. <laughs> You know, and so there will be a physical sensation there, but it's conditioned by that phenomena, by the, by the sound. So I would, I would basically keep it very simple. Notice whether you're primarily with the object, primarily with keeping the attention at the sense base, even when it's felt as sensations, or with the knowing of it. And often it will be a mixture of the, two, of the three. You know, it's, as I say, it's not that they, you separate them, but at different times one or another will be in foreground. I mean, just as you're seeing, for example, it's interesting to keep your attention either in what's being seen, not so much as a concept, but just as color and form, you know, in light and shadow, Sometimes being aware, you could say, of the sensations of the eyes, and sometimes of the knowing, sometimes of the awareness itself.
gets a little when you when you really right there with the sense base of the eyes, it gets a little psychedelic. <laughs> it's interesting, just because you you can begin to experience often with sight, especially we're so caught in we're so caught in the concepts about what is being seen. I mean, immediately, seeing arises in man, woman, hall, cushion, tree, and that's what we think we're seeing. Right? But of course, that's just a concept about what we're seeing. And so sometimes just to drop back and actually feel the impressions or the sensations of the eyes and the whole feel starts to flicker and the solidity of it and the conceptual nature falls away. Really see the impermanence the very momentary nature in seeing as well, which often we don't. It's largely through the eye door that we have a very solidified sense of the world as solid objects, because we're not really paying careful attention to the very process of seeing. Well, the way that uh, might be helpful to understand the knowing in each moment arising is just to contrast, because this will take a little act of imagination, but we'll, we'll take the breath, for example. There's the sensation, either of the rising falling or the in and out, and that sensation in every moment is being known. So just in your imagination, contrast the difference between that experience and suppose there were a corpse, you know, and its stomach were being pumped and the rising falling movement would be there. The physical movement would be there, rising, falling, rising, falling. But as far as we know, there's no knowing going on. There's just the physical movement. There's no awareness. Okay, so what's the difference between your experience and the experience of the corpse? I don't know if this example grabs you as much as it does me. <laughs> it just seems to point out exactly that added dimension of awareness, of knowing, which is absent in a strictly physical you know, a physical phenomena. Um, something which I've mentioned throughout the course and I found helpful is to express this to oneself in the passive voice. So, for example, sound being known, thought being known, a breath being known, because it takes the I out of the knowing. There's no one doing anything there. Something arises and is known. And so then you could further look and investigate, and this gets to be quite an uh, interesting matter. It's clear that something is being known. It's, that's our experience, sound arising and being known. 
but then one might investigate known by what? And we ask the question not so much to find an answer, but as a vehicle for exploring the nature of awareness. And here's where it gets interesting, because when we actually investigate the nature of awareness, there's nothing much to find. Right? It's invisible, it's clear, it's unobstructed, nothing is getting between the awareness and the object, there's no, there's no barrier, it's completely unobstructed, it's boundless. It's space-like. It's not space, because space doesn't know anything, but it has some of the characteristics of space. We can't see space. It has no boundary, no color, no form. Awareness is very much like that, and yet there's a cognizing faculty. And this is the great mystery of consciousness. And what's amazing is that it's a mystery that's revealing itself every single moment. <laughs> there's nothing, we don't have to go looking for it or create it, or, it's happening in every moment but mostly we're completely overlooking it. And so f I've just found it very interesting in the practice to settle back a great deal of ease and simply notice moment after moment things being known. Now you're not creating the flow of objects, you're not creating the awareness. It's just sound is known, a breath is known, a sensation is known, it's all happening by itself. And to begin to notice or understand, recognize the spontaneous, empty nature of awareness. So it's all, it's all kind of investigating, but not with that, especially with awareness, it can't be done with a heavy hand, because it's very subtle, it's like space. But again, keep in mind that it's space-like. It's not actually space. No, I believe it is. This consciousness, this is <laughs> according to one model. Okay, in every moment of experience, this awareness, consciousness, with a particular object—a sight, a sound, a thought, a sensation—and in that moment of consciousness, are a whole array of different mental factors mental qualities arising together with that moment of knowing. So, for example, mindfulness, concentration, greed, hatred, fear, love, compassion, these are all mental factors arising in a moment of consciousness. And so, there are, in this model, there are six kinds of consciousness, the six sense, five sense doors and mind objects. And each one is arising, knowing the object, and colored by the associated factors which are arising.
of n- The question was in the being with the primary object and then noticing other things arising, that there seems to be some kind of selection process in terms of where we direct our attention. Um, I think that selection process uh, could be conditioned by a lot of different things. Uh, one is by the strength of the arising object, as you said, so if there's a strong pain, just the intensity of it. There could be um, some actual uh, choice in the mind that you're going to, for example, open to sound. Even if it's not conscious in the moment, that might be a conditioning. So you're with the breath, and having had that understanding beforehand in the background that when sounds arise you're going to open to them so that could be the the selecting um, the force of the selection or it could um, actually be quite spontaneous you know just what's arising in the mind being uh, drawn to it in a very spontaneous Yeah, I I think that's fine. It's not so much to understand why things arise. It's rather to be present in the moment of their arising. So the why question is not so important. It's much more uh, it's much more helpful simply to see how each moment's experience arises and passes away, seeing the momentariness of phenomena. And what it is that we're watching, or observing, or feeling, on one level, it's really irrelevant. If it's not one thing, it's another. (laughs) And what we're practicing is non-attachment. We're not practicing to have some experience. We're practicing non-clinging. So keep that in mind as the reference point for what you're doing. And it's very easy to forget that. Because as I mentioned the other night, we get enchanted by objects. We get enchanted by experience as if that's what we're practicing for. But that's not where liberation lies. Liberation comes from non-clinging, non-grasping. So irrespective of what's arising, our practice is the same. 
I think we need to go do interviews. Um, see if you can find that balance uh, through the day of a vigilant attentiveness and an inner relaxation and inner softness. So there's really a settled back in the moment, simply being moment after moment with things being known. So as you stand, as you turn, as you begin walking, as you put your shoes on, whatever, make the day seamless in that way. Notice when the mind gets pulled out from that and simply come back again. Have a wonderfully mindful day. <laughs> Do you have any questions about your practice? The question was about working with the paradox between metta and upeka, loving-kindness and equanimity. Um, There's one very simple guideline. Don't do them at the same time. (laughs) (laughs) I think when you you understand it, Not so much from within each practice itself, but from um, a broader, a more inclusive understanding of the Dharma. You see how they actually fit together very well. Because in some way, you could see it as analogous to uh, the connection of compassion and wisdom, which are the two great attributes, you know, of the Buddha. Equanimity is the wisdom aspect in that it understands the lawfulness of everything that happens, that things are not happening accidentally. Understanding the lawfulness allows the mind to become impartial in its boundlessness. So it's, and that's really, the, that's really the meaning of equanimity or the, the quality of equanimity, impartiality, with the mind not going towards or away from everything. So we can understand the lawfulness and the impartiality and then out of that place of wisdom cultivate a boundless goodwill for all beings. It doesn't mean that we forget that things are lawful. And because of that, the metta is really freed from what, from that state which is its near enemy, which is attachment. Because metta without wisdom, we're developing all these good feelings, good wishes for people, Without the wisdom, it could easily become or turn into attachment towards beings. 
So that's where the balance is. It's, it's like the balance between wisdom, compassion, or equanimity, and metta. It's the wisdom which holds the metta, or the wisdom which allows the metta to flow without any grasping, without any clinging. The question was the assumption that uh, there's some effect from the metta has sitting here every day doing it. There's always an effect from everything. I mean, because nothing is happening in isolation. You know, there's no... So every thought, every movement, every action of necessity will have effect in the world. What the effect is, is hard to say. I'm tempted to tell my little meta story. Did I mention my... <laughs> I was walking in the woods, this is quite a few years ago, and uh, out in Western Mass, I was walking by this house and there was this little dog that was barking quite aggressively, you know, and came running towards me. So I thought, oh, perfect opportunity to do some meta. <laughs> be happy, be happy, be happy. He came over and bit me. <laughs> Maybe that's what made it happy. <laughs> uh, so it always has some effect. <laughs> Although in that situation, I uh, did begin to question the purity of my motive. <laughs> The effect really does depend a lot, or the, the magnitude of the effect depends both on the power and the purity of the mind that's sending the metta, and also the quality of the openness or the sensitivity of the person to whom it's being sent. Um, but that does not... Actually, understanding that there's an effect from the metta itself highlights the lawfulness of things. Now, yeah, that given the development of certain mind states, it will have certain results, even though we can't necessarily know what the results are all the time. Uh, so it's not, it's not paradoxical in that sense either. The, the danger or the caution is not to be doing the matter with an attachment to result. No, it's really like a free offering. It's a free gift. We send it out, let what happens happen. Otherwise, there's, there's a kind of clinging or attachment uh, expectation in the sending. It's really, it, it's a very deep question because it, it really uh, is about the understanding and the integration of relative and absolute levels. You know, the meta level is a relative level because we're, we're talking about beings. And, and being is a relative concept. And may you be happy, may I be happy. And we're dealing with the concept of I. 
of individual beings. The absolute level is that there's no one there. You know, it's a whole empty phenomena rolling on. And both of these are true. So that's where it sometimes, on the surface, seems paradoxical. But a lot of the spiritual practice is about understanding, in some way, the unity of relative and absolute levels. You know, at the same time that we're wishing loving-kindness for all beings, there's the wisdom of understanding that there are no beings. So we have another ten days to figure this out. The question was about, to, to paraphrase it, uh, whether it's necessary to do the Brahma-viharas as a way of developing and deepening those qualities or whether they come as natural attributes of awareness, you know, as we do the awareness practice. Um, my mind, when it's given two choices, and this is, this is, I guess, uh, you've been regaled with qualities of the different types, you know, the deluded type, the aversive type. Well, I'm the third. <laughs> Given two choices, my mind says, let's do both. You know, let's get the benefit of both. And in some way, both are true. It's not, so it's not, it's not a question of either or. It is true that out of awareness, all the Brahma-viharas come. You know, so that would be a fine way to go. And they do come. They really come quite spontaneously because really the Brahma-viharas are the expression of non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion, which is exactly what's being cultivated in every moment of mindfulness. So they're going to develop spontaneously. And on the other hand, we can single out the particular qualities 
you know, of the Brahma Viharas and strengthen them. My sense and my vision of the Dharma is that it is so vast. And the, when I think of the, or imagine, you know, the mind of a Buddha, it's, it's so incomprehensibly vast. Why not do it all? You know, just that, and there's no rush. You know, there's plenty of time to cultivate all of the, you could call it all of the paramis, or all of the attributes of Buddhahood. Or, uh, and they all are feeding each other. You know, generally we tend to have a very limited time scale for our practice. Well, what will I do this three months, or this six weeks, or this ten days, or this year? Or... It's said that, you know, the Buddha in his previous lives, in one, at least in one story, where he spent lifetimes just practicing one parami. You know, lifetimes practicing patience, lifetimes practicing metta. Lifetimes practicing lifting, moving, placing. <laughs> you know. And so even if we're not so much in the belief system of lifetimes, which you may or may not be, but we can even view our, just this life in that context. You know, where you take time just to develop different aspects of the Dharma, and it's all, it's all for the same uh, purpose in the same direction. So the short answer is, it's not necessary, and it's nice to do. <laughs> well, I, uh, actually, I think what's motivating that question is something that Michelle said in one of her talks about someone she knew who had practiced with possible for 20 years and had never done metta, and then he started to do metta and said, you know, that he felt about his Vipassana practices had a sort of aridity about it. You know? So, um, I guess that's what's motivating the question. You know? I, I personally don't feel that Vipassana has error, mm-hmm. but then I have no meaning at that point. Mm-hmm. <laughs> is the concern that it might become more arid as it goes on. (laughs) The particular rhythms of our practice and the particular practices we do, I would really be very intuitive about what feels appropriate to be doing at any stage along the way. Because as I say, it's all part of one great river. There's just one announcement I'd uh, like to make. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.